To continue our Skylab 50th anniversary celebrations, we've decided to do something extra special. Yes, today we find out about what it was like in Mission Control during Skylab by talking to the legendary Mission Controller, Bill Moon. If you have any thoughts on what we're up to, please let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now, enjoy episode 142 of the Space and Things Podcast. controls and hang on. Here comes the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 142 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing good. I'm actually, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday the 16th. So I'm getting ready to go to Kansas tomorrow. I'm leaving bright and early in the morning. I'm very already nice. packed, so I'm very excited. Dave and Hit, me, uh, Milt Windler, and Jack Laus, but you know, as one does, yeah. we're doing a, like a Skylab anniversary event on Thursday this week. So I'm very excited. It's going to be awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. And did I see that, uh, I haven't read it, but did I see you have a new article up this week? Was it just one or was there two articles that went up this week? I actually have two articles. One uh, is on Medium. It's not related to spaceflight. It's more related to uh, mental health. But the second one is called Five for 50, and it's basically uh, five unsung heroes of, of the Skylab program. You know, people who didn't necessarily fly on Skylab, but they contributed to, they definitely contributed to the program. So it was fun to write. There's some, I think, cool figures on there uh some who one who's uh been on our show so i think you'll enjoy it i'm sure i will i i will definitely get around to reading them i will also put links in the show notes as i always do now emily you may have noticed in the podcast and listeners you may have noticed that we've had different people performing our stings over the last few weeks we've had some of our patreons record some things on their phones and uh and send them over to me for me to drop in if any of our patrons would like to do this simple as that if you want any advice just drop me a message anyway Wizzo John Wizenhunt has absolutely smashed it out of the park this week so I want to play you this because we're interviewing a mission controller this week so it makes sense to me that he's done that for this week all right all flight controllers I need a go no go for podcasting broadband go computers go microphones we are go flat mixers Go! Enthusiasm! Go flight! Awesome guests! We are Go Flight! Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney is Go! That is freaking awesome! I see John Hodge showed up too yeah. during that one. I love that. Yeah, John Hodge made an appearance. The, the only British guy. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I love the Southern guy. We are Go Flight! Yeah. Like that. That. That sounds just like that. Just it sounds just like it. I love it. it. Thank you so much, John. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. Very happy with that. And I think that sets us up nicely for this week's episode. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited. This week's guest has been on our hit list for a long time. It's an absolute joy to have him with us today. Today we speak to the legendary Bill Moon. 
it's a real honor to have Bill with us today, and we'll learn about his background in the interview. He worked at NASA from 1965 to 2002, and the reason we want to interview him today is to find out more about what it was like in mission control during the Skylab missions. With a lot more systems on board than previous Apollo, Gemini, and Mercury missions, Skylab required a different approach, and we'll find out all about that right now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bill. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, now, we love an excellent scene-setting question on Space and Things. So tell us how you became a NASA flight controller during the early days of U.S. human spaceflight, and how old were you when you started working at NASA? Oh, you have to be, that's an embarrassing question. I got to do subtraction real quick. <laughs> 73, I guess I was 31 years old. I mean, for Skylab. Of course, I graduated from Mississippi State University in 1964. And from there, I went to work at McDonnell Aircraft in St. Louis, Missouri. And of course, I, I was working, you know, a lot of folks asked what I did. And I, I tell them jokingly that I dealt in death and destruction because I worked on the Phantom II spacecrafts. But while I was there, I used to go back look at the uh, aft fuselage, which is in building 101 at the McDonnell Aircraft Plant and what was sitting there, but a Gemini spacecraft, you know, and uh, also the uh, man orbiting laboratories. So that was always in the back of my mind. But I had an opportunity to come to Houston to visit my brother. And while I was here, I used to, he said, well, I want to go down and visit Johnson Space. At that time, it was called the Manned Spacecraft Center. And I wangled a an interview out there and the guy showed me around and and at the same time I filled out a form 57 which at that time was a an employment thing I had uh, interviewed them at school and the amount of money they offered when I graduated wasn't quite enough to go to Kennedy so I took the job at McDonald but then I went back to McDonald to continue my work and came home one day and lo and behold there was a telegram under my door you know we offer you a job pending um Passing the physical. So I accepted that job. And at that time, we also, uh, I was I was there already at McDonald for about a year. And they tried like heck to get me on the Gemini program. But that didn't come to be. So I went ahead and uh, moved to Houston. I think I was 21, 22 then. In 1965, I came to work at uh, Johnson Space Center. And I got employed in the uh, Apollo Systems Branch in the remote site section. So I was slated to go man the remote sites as a systems engineer, as an Apollo flight controller. So I didn't know what a flight controller was then, but but I learned pretty quick. You know, you had to <laughs> learn how to do the drawings and mission rules and, and procedures. But also the, the first time I got to go out on a remote site was uh, on Gemini 8. And I was with the team that was headed for the uh, Rosenat Victor in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So that was my uh, introduction to flight controlling. And that was a hoot because here I am at the ripo age. I think I was 1966, 24 years old. Here I'm out there, a big, you know, real-time space hero, I guess, going out to remote site. And we're out the, on the Rosenat Victor about uh, 200 nautical miles out, off the shore of uh, Brazil on the Rosenat Victor, which is about the length of a, a football field. 
and they had a we had a flight control station out there, and that was a flight that uh, Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott, a, a Gemini eight, that uh, yeah spun up and they came over us and spinning up, you know, and uh, I I watched the heart rate. I was I was in training, and of course when they went past us, they were in pretty good shape. But uh, of course they aborted in the Sea of Japan, and we stayed out there, and uh, we tracked the Agena for many days. On the on the tracking ship, we sent commands to the Gina, sent it up to 800 nautical miles, and uh, we ran out of food on the ship. We hand lined over the ship with some shrimp, <laughs> caught fish, and then we had to pull in the port to buy some food from. Uh, and I forgot the name of the port, but we went there and got some food, and they brought it out in a back of a truck, non refrigerated, <laughs> side of uh, must have been lamb or goat or something. Totally covered in flies, but I guess we ate that on the way back to back to port to come home. But then we, uh, I started uh, being an electrical power systems operator in the staff support room. That's the little room behind the big room. The big room be- being the mission operations controller where the, quote, in my discipline, the team leader was the econ. So I worked from there from Apollo 7 through Apollo 13. And then I made it into the front room as a trainee under Cy Liebergott on Apollo 14. And then I took a little break from Apollo 14. I was the uh, in the span room, spacecraft analysis room. I was manning there. And then on Apollo 16, I became a full-fledged ECOM. And I was lead ECOM for Apollo 16 and 17. Uh, I was an ECOM slash Eagle. I'll explain that later for Skylab. And then I was an ECOM for the Apollo Soyuz test project. And then I was the launch Eagle or shuttle one and two. And I was doing that while I was the manager of the electrical power system section in flight operations where I had about 22, 23 people working for me. And I was responsible for certifying them ready to support the flight for shuttle. And uh, from then on, I got into management and then my people started working in the control center and I had to work the spacecraft analysis room as the lead uh, guy there for m- most of the launch launches. And then later on, I moved over to the space shuttle program office to, to further my career. All right. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. NASA really was unfortunately not known for its diversity in hiring during the 1960s. So tell us a little bit about what it was like being one of the first Asian Americans working in in such a visible role at NASA. Uh, Did you have any sense that you were like a pioneer or a a trailblazer at that time? Well, I I didn't think anything about it because even when I worked at um, McDonnell Aircraft, you know, I had some not any issues, but some of the people, this one lady told me she considered me more American than most of the guys working (laughs) at McDonnell because the way I interacted with everybody and uh, I've always gotten, you know, well with everybody and acclimated to all my conditions. I, I, I didn't feel any different. Of course, you know, I came from a family with about eight kids and we were living in, uh, in Mississippi at the time in a little town, about 800 people. I did most of my schooling in the school, total people going to the whole school is, uh, two or 300 people. Wow. But, uh, you know, my parents, when we were growing up, I always reminded them we were a little bit different. Now, you could ask my brothers and sisters how they were treated, but I I guess I'm a little different than most all those guys because uh, 
I got along well with everybody, even in college. Uh, you know, they call that at the time I was growing up the Jim Crow South. And you saw a little bit of that, uh, you know, the, the racial issues then, but I, I didn't let it bother me. You know, even at NASA, when I uh, worked there, you know, I, I, I knew I was different. And I knew if I just kept my head down and did my job and things will show up and it'll prove out all right. And luckily it did, even into when I got into upper management in, in the shuttle program. So you mentioned earlier that there were two roles in, in Mission Control Center that you had. There may be more, but the two you mentioned were Ecom and Eagle. So what were they and what were the differences between the two? Well, that, that started, you know, the Ecom was the front room in charge of the Apollo systems, yeah. which was the Ecom discipline was the power and electrical power distribution, uh, the cryogenic tanks, the thermal system, all the systems on board the spacecraft. We didn't have, at one point, we had the communications systems, but we, we moved that over to the, the ENCOs after Apollo 11. So that was the ECOM systems. But then when we got into Skylab, that's where we developed the Eagle position because we had more disciplines. Then we had, right. uh, instead of just the CSM, Command and Service Module systems, we had the orbital workshop systems. We had the airlock systems. You know, we had the new power system there, the solar rays, uh, the power conditioning groups we had on the airlock module. And then we had the uh, Apollo telescope mount electrical system, which uh, was called the charger battery relay module, CBRMs that we had along with the solar rays. And then we also had the software involved. And so our office manager at the time says, hey, we'll just combine it all for Skylab and call it Eagle. But when the CSM was flying alone by itself prior to docking, we had ECOMs. Okay. <laughs> so when I, you know, after John Aaron launched them and, and we were still not docked to the cluster, as we called it, I took over for John Aaron on his ship and I became an ECOM until we docked. Then we docked. So we had the whole thing. We had the whole cluster now. We got to worry about the environmental control for the whole cluster, the power system for the whole cluster. And anything else that nobody else wanted to mess with on board that large vehicle of ours, our space station, our first space station, as I called it. And that kind of went along until we got into shuttle. And the first two flights, uh, because it was an unknown vehicle, we decided to keep Eagle and we separated. And we we had the Econs that, that, that worked with the cryogenic stuff, but I think we had the tanks. So the Eagle was the electrical power guys. And the instrumentation and the system management software and the pyrotechnics and the sequential systems. So that was the Eagle job. The right. Ecom job was thermal, all the temperature control and all the lithium hydroxide and all that good stuff. <laughs> but later on, as we got more experience with shuttle, we merged them back together and called them Ecoms. So I was one of those that was an Eagle at one point. And once we got docked on board for, for Skylab, we became Eagles. Eagles. It's a good name, that, isn't it? Eagle. I like that. Yeah. yeah. This kind of, you know, we, we dreamed up all kinds of acronyms. NASA's well known for that. Awesome. <laughs> so on May 14th, 1973, Skylab launched, but was immediately beset by significant problems. So tell us what attempting to control the space station during that time was, was like. Of course, we had a different group, group of guys that was there before the CSM docked. So we had a bunch of guys that were activation guys. Of course, we heard that 
we had lost a wing, we lost a micrometeorite shield and said, hey, we're going to continue this flight. I don't know, you know, until we stabilized it and found out that uh, we had enough power to limp along until we got up there to fix it. And then we worried about the thermal control because everything was getting so hot. And we learned a lot of different things, you know, like, uh, hey, what do we have to do now that we're worried about the, the high temperatures in the vehicle? So now we've got to vent the thing to outgas it because the high temperature is going to outgas all the stuff we had on board. So the systems guys had to worry about that. But then we had the control guys, you know, we had to spin up the the, the control momentum, momentum gyros and the rate gyros and all that stuff to get in the right attitude so we could get the correct orientation to get electrical power generated from the solar rays that we had left, you know. And, of course, we hadn't powered the whole thing up yet. So, and we, we watched it and tried to determine how we were going to try to get the temperature down. But the temperature internal to the, the vehicle has gotten up to over 100 degrees, 120 maybe. I think the powers to be, you know, decided that uh, we better go design something to, to, to lower the temperature. Luckily, we had this one individual by the name of Jack Kinsler that developed all kinds of good stuff at the Space Center and, and came up with the first idea that was the parasol that was something big enough to, to you can uh, deploy outside of the uh, scientific airlock and open it like an umbrella. And that brought the temperature down significantly where the crew could go in and work. Then we had to go uh, see how we could get the uh, solar rays on the OWS deployed to get us the proper amount of power, because that's what we did, depended on. And luckily, the, the, the crew on the first uh, the first flight got the, I think they got the solar ray deployed. I think uh, Conrad and uh, Kerwin did that, I think, after the second try. And then we had to watch it slowly deploy. You know, we put it directed toward the sun and cer certainly the sun heated the stuff up that allowed it to deploy that one wing that was left. And then we had to learn how to operate it once we got up there. But well, that was a lot of fun. I mean, I always, <laughs> I always had a lot of fun working on Skylab. It's one of my favorite flights. <laughs> Good, because that's what we want to talk about. So obviously it was uh, crewed for nine months and thousands of experiment hours were undertaken during that time. It's impossible to try and sum that up in, in one interview. But what were some of the highlights of that mission for you? Do you have a particular favorite moment or perhaps an unsung hero? Well, like I said, you know, I read the thing that Emily wrote up there. <laughs> I happened to call it, rock, call it up on the computer and she had something about the unsung heroes to uh, Skylab. And I noticed Jack Kinsler, you know, he was one of the big guys that got us to get the temperature down on, on the, the uh, Skylab uh, 2, I guess. And uh, I used to call it the whole thing, Skylab 1 and 2 is Skylab 1, but I didn't know we had Skylab 4 until we later talked about it. <laughs> so uh, Jack Kinzer, in my mind, was one of the big heroes there. And, of course, you got the crew out there to get the solar rays deployed. That was biggie. Yeah. Of course, you know, uh, it was uh, some other designs in there that I would say that good engineering from McDonnell Aircraft because they allowed us to be able to help the crew do a lot of things from the ground. We we did all kinds of commanding from the ground, you know, to offload the crew a little bit on things we had yeah. to do. To me, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, obviously, mission control had never been used for those long durations before. What was the process like? Because obviously, before Skylab, the longest duration spaceflight for the US was 14 days, which took place in December 64 on Gemini 7. So 
did you use just the one room or was it two rooms you used in in rotation? No, no, we uh, we, we we used a. It was similar to the concept we used for Apollo. I mean, you know, but except we had more shifts now, light right. control shifts. You know, we had like a fourteen thing, and you know, sometimes I would be, uh, you know, day shift with the that where the crew are awake, and then we sometimes we'd be the swing shift, the planning shift, and then we'd have the night shift, and and then somebody had to take off because you know that that thing was a long time for us. Yeah, and every now and then you you sure wished you had a few days off, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask what what was that like the shift patterns because you know it was lo- long periods uh, of being up there, wasn't it? Kind of screwed up your circadian rhythm a little bit. But you, <laughs> yeah, you, you, know, you, you worked it, you know, just like we did on on uh, on Apollo, you know, the lunar missions. You know, on the lunar missions, once we got TLI on the way to the moon, what do you say, the translunar injection? I guess we had telemetry. Most all the time, straight up, you know. Yeah. Uh, on the other shifts, when we didn't have all the tracking stations in, we would have a tracking station here, and we have a little time to get off and do something, and and then get another tracking shift. You know, get AOS on the next site. It worked. It, it you know that was a job that we did. Yeah, Emily and I were recently at an event where where Jerry Bostick called mission control time during Skylab as boring. He used the, the word boring. Was that your experience? Or are you, you're painting a different picture here. Those flight dynamics guys, once you got it on orbit, you know. Yeah. We were going around and around. They didn't, you know, the only thing they worried about, it, we had to make an emergency deorbit. Most of the time we were doing system stuff. Yeah. And watching the, sometimes the crew would do a miss switch and we'd have to correct them. And they would ask questions and we would help them, you know. It's just part of the team. And we'd be really writing Flight notes and making sure the Capcom read them up correctly, and and then we'd have to write procedures, and we have to we would have to uh, review the flight procedures every time because you know we didn't have a a situation like they do now. You know we can sit here and type things up and upload it, and we had to teletype everything. You know you had to you had to draw pictures using teletype. Can you imagine trying to draw a picture using teletype? <laughs> we did that. You know we. As we went through the mission, we had things that, for instance, some of our power conditioning groups and some of our CB charger battery relay modules, some of the, the relays would stick open. And then, you know, we lose a we lose one string of power, you know. Wow. So when we do our DEVAs, we would draw pictures and tell them, hey, take your rubber hammer and go out here when you're out there on this box in this location, tap it. And we would <laughs> tap it. And the relays would click back in, you know. <laughs> oh, and since we're talking about that, you know, uh, Skylab was the first flight we had in-flight maintenance. And let me tell you the story how we got that. So early in the Skylab, we were sending guys over to Marshall to do uh, design reviews. And at that time, I was a section head. At that time, I sent one of my guys over there. And I always was in charge of the in-flight maintenance guys. We had started in-flight maintenance in my section. And we hadn't introduced it to the flight program yet. So I sent him over there to write a design uh, change request. And he came back and I said, well, how do we do on this uh, input to the review board? He said, well, they rejected it. They said they didn't think it was right. So at the next design review, I went over by myself and. I hate to use the word I, but I pulled their lead guy over and took him to the back room. And I said, look, let's, let's have this discussion. 
and I explained to him a few things. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. At the time, the thing that we used to, it was called a RID. I think it has something to do with change in design. Now, what I'll do is I'll write the RID and I'll put your name on it and say Marshall instead of JSC. And he bought off on it. Bingo, he got approved just like that the next time. (laughs) (laughs) So, therefore, that's how we got in flight maintenance in the space program. It came from mission operations. Wow. Uh, We did that for shuttle too. We wrote a memo to the shuttle program and and luckily we got uh, we developed a big toolkit with snap-on tools and all kinds of things you know on shuttle we had to remove a crt from down you know the one of the aft flight deck and put it in the front flight deck and luckily we had the procedure written for that and, and that was a biggie for the for the whole program in flight maintenance that was the the derivation of the uh, in flight maintenance it started on skylab you know we started off with uh, a water dispenser that got stuck. We had to tell them how to go undo the clog and do all kinds of things. I mean, it would have been nice to have that for Apollo 13, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's what we did. So you were also involved with restoring contact with Skylab in 1978 when they brought it back up and ultimately bringing it down in, in July 1979. So what were your feelings about Skylab at that time? Did, did you really think, you know, maybe we can restore this for future missions or what were your thoughts? Well, I, I was always hoping we could uh, boost it back up and use it as a man praise presence in, in space. You know, I, I saw it as a big, uh, that was a big asset that we were getting rid of. I mean, it had a lot of capability, you know, if we could get crews up there and do what they're doing now, doing the, uh, all kinds of scientific experimentation. You know, learn a lot about physiology on the long length stay in space. You know, the longest we had was, was it 84 days? Hmm. It'd yep. been nice to stay six months. <laughs> yeah. Learn a few more things about, uh, you know, do a lot of medical experiments. You know, we sent a group of guys out to uh, Bermuda to, to try to save it too one time. You know, we were trying to determine what, what kind of capability we had and, Evidently, we didn't uh, develop shuttle fast enough to go reboost it. I think that was the reason we, we we couldn't get it up there high enough. All right. So, what do you think is Skylab's legacy? Well, I I think I think it it gave us uh, the U.S. the uh, the capability of uh, knowing that we could do a, a space station in orbit for long duration flight. Yeah, I think that's one of the legacies that we have there, and of course, it gave us. As flight controllers, you know, that was our first, at least my first introduction to uh, solar rays. <laughs> I mean, we had to learn new technology, new words like albedo, uh, earth shine and shadowing and try to figure out how things would uh, impact us thermally on the spacecraft. And also from us ECOMs, we don't we don't know too much about light dynamics and trajectory and all that good stuff. But we, we learned how to. Uh, power down things to conserve energy and keep your eye on uh, operating systems and things like that. And we could also train new guys to bring them in to work on it with us at the same time, real time. You know, the things that we didn't do before, we didn't trust anybody else to work on. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bill. This has been really fascinating. There's, There's things in here that I wasn't aware of and didn't know about how it all operated uh, I'm sure our listeners will will enjoy hearing these stories. It, it gave us an uh, opportunity to work as a team because each team had its own ego. 
<laughs> really. They wanted, they wanted to always complete things within their own shift instead of passing it on to the next shift to finish up. You know, the guy said, well, you're, you're not going to get credit. I said, I'm not get credit for it. I says, I'm not worried about credit. I'm just trying to do the right thing, to, you know, from a, from a systems guy's standpoint. Absolutely. But if you knew the flight directors that we had there, these were our up-and-coming flight directors. We had the Don Putties, the Neil Hutchinsons. These guys had big egos, but they were also team players. But, you know, if they could keep it and get all the credit for your team, you'd be doing good things. But we learned how to – we had a lot of different – even amongst ecoms. I mean, you could you could read our flight notes that we took between shifts. You could hear things like, well, who made you the king of the ecoms? Why are you making this decision, you know? We were always bickering, but we always came together as a team. I mean, we had a lot of egos. <laughs> Emily, you know that. You, you worked in the subs, you know. <laughs> One admiral's bigger than the other admiral. <laughs> yeah, people have different egos. That's definitely true. You have people who are more like down to earth, and then you have the people who are like, well, who are really like obsessed with, you know, being in the spotlight. So, absolutely. well, yeah, there were guys that were guys that were looking for spotlight, and there were guys like ecoms that were trying to get the job done. Let's get it done. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Bickering. Exactly. Exactly. Let's just get this done and not worry about anything and else. And keep the crew safe. That was our deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, pretty important deal too. Well, Bill, thank All you right. very much for joining us today. This has been amazing. I've had a great time and hopefully we'll okay. talk again soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Are you over the moon about this podcast? It's not just a phase. You're listening to Space and Things. All right. Well, that was freaking awesome. I know this is a family show. Uh, try to minimize any cussing but that was freaking awesome uh bill moon is a legend he is also in the uh great mission control movie yes. that's based on the book go flight by rick houston if you haven't read the book or haven't seen the movie please do both uh highly suggest it but um that was an awesome interview bill moon told me stuff that i i thought i was a skylab expert and i he told me stuff that i honestly was not certain things that I honestly was confused about or not really aware of. So that really was an awesome interview. It's always cool when you can walk away from something. You're like, man, I didn't know that. That is so cool. It's really cool that he's still very enthusiastic about Skylab this many years after it happened and, and what it accomplished. And I love the fact that he mentioned, you know, Skylab was the first platform where they had to fix stuff yeah. on it. And that was a big deal as well. Because I think people don't really think about that. But yeah, that was the first place they had to fix things. Unfortunately, they couldn't do that. with the. That wasn't the objective of the Apollo lunar missions. The Apollo lunar missions was, let's get on the moon. And Skylab proved that things had to be a little different if you're going to space for a long period of time. So that was awesome. Very cool interview. He mentioned after we, we came off that he started working on Skylab the day after he finished on Apollo 17. It's something I, I wanted to bring up last week and I forgot. We forget that this 50th anniversary stuff has made me realize how close together Apollo and Skylab, well, I know they're the same hardware, but the Skylab element, there was whole new systems that these guys had to learn and they finished Apollo 17 in December. You get to May and they've got five months and he was straight in the simulator the yep. next day figuring out what was going on. They just didn't stop, did they? And Skylab was such a bigger spacecraft compared to to what they were dealing with on Apollo. Apollo was relatively little compared to 
but infrastructure was relatively small compared to, you know, Skylab was like a boxcar yeah. in space. And they had to learn, you know, all the systems in there, which were quite extensive. As, as somebody who has tried to study the systems in Skylab, you know, just for fun, because <laughs> I'm a total loser, it's quite extensive. It's, you know, there's a lot to learn. Obviously, the astronauts trained on that for many years. But yeah, the flight controllers, some of them, they had to go straight from the lunar missions to Skylab. So it was a real learning curve for them. You know, completely different spacecraft. Use some Apollo infrastructure, but still much bigger, much more comprehensive, (laughs) intense. They really had a lot of work cut out for them. And it, it really shows you how flexible this personnel was. They just rose to the challenge. And that extends to the period where you know oh crap we think skylab's lost a bunch of stuff you yeah know? <laughs> where i was gonna go originally was the fact that th- these longer duration missions that hadn't been done before either we forget we, we we remember the fact that the crew were away for a number of days not just with the training but they were off the planet for for a number of days where they could you know weren't seeing their family and all this and the other but the mission control people did a hell of a shift on skylab all of them and and you got to say, particularly the systems guys, you know, I, I made reference to the Jer- Jerry Bostick saying it was boring. And, and of course, he wasn't in charge of systems. It was just once it was up there, he was, you know, it was probably quite boring for, for someone in, in flight dynamics. But the systems guys, there was so much for them to do. And those shifts would have been intense. They would have been long shifts of lots of systems and lots of things to look at and keep going. Uh, again, after the interview, we, we got talking about systems that were breaking as well. I wish we'd, we'd kept recording for a little bit longer, actually, but we got talking about yeah. systems that, that were fixed on, on Skylab 4 that, that were breaking and things like that. that. You know, Things were constantly changing and they were constantly having to come up with new ideas for, for how, they, how they were working. And you look at where we are now with mission control and the shift system they have in place for the ISS and so on and so forth. And so much of that would have been learnt directly from what happened during Skylab. You could trace back those lines from mission control. And it wasn't really until ISS where, where you had longer duration flights again for Houston to have to deal with. You know, shuttle flights were only ever a couple of weeks at a time. So in my mind, you can see a clear line from the Skylab guys to the people who are now working in mission control on the ISS. There's such a big gap, but lessons learned absolutely have helped where we are now. Um, And it's great to talk to one of the systems guys who was so integral in all of that back in the 70s, who not only was he part of it, but he says... It was so much fun. Yeah, and and I'm saying that, and I'm not going to mention any names. I've talked to a few other people who were either flight controllers or worked in mission control during Skylab, and not everybody had a fun time because in the beginning, especially when the space when Skylab had a lot of problems, it was tough. I mean, it was really hard. They had to work on trying to orient the spacecraft so it wouldn't get too overheated because they didn't have a a, a sun shield yeah. on it anymore. You know, they had a big power deficit. I think they only had, God, I I could be giving the wrong number here, but uh, I think they only had 60 volts coming from the remaining solar panel. That's not a lot. (laughs) 60 volts is not a lot. My, I think my good old Revlon hairdryer has more output than that. I mean, seriously, it's, they were not having a fun time in the beginning. So, um, 
to hear somebody be so enthusiastic about that experience is really awesome because I've heard stories where they were like, man, the first days were really yeah. tough because we were just trying to, we were just trying to keep it alive. Things got better once the first crew went up there and did some fixes, but really in the first 10 days, all mission control could do was try to control it. That couldn't have been easy, but yeah, it's really refreshing to talk to, you know, Bill Moon, who was just so positive about it and has such a good, uh, good memories of that program. And, I love also the fact that he connected Skylab to the space shuttle yeah. as well because that was a huge bridge to the space shuttle. They had to learn how to fix systems in space and they had to learn how to live in space before the shuttle could really even be a reality as it was envisioned. So I love that he connected those two things. I mean, of course, he was there. So yeah. of course he would. But I think a lot of some space writers miss that. They missed that, you know, that was sort of the bridge between the two programs was Skylab Space Shuttle, in my opinion. You know, I mean, I love Apollo Soyuz, but that was more like, OK, we're, we're going to shake hands and be yeah. friends in space. Whereas Skylab was sort of like the stepping stone to get to the space shuttle to the point where, OK, we can work as a science lab in space for this much time. It's, that's really interesting. I never thought of that either, that, you know, you're not just changing mission control into a longer duration and new new spacecraft systems it's the mindset change isn't it which i suppose was started on the last couple of of lunar landings perhaps but but yeah fully fully integrated science mission by the time you get to skylab uh, and and mission control had to reflect that and and that's something that, that i'd not given any thought to before absolutely they had to change their entire mindset and that was really something that they had to learn about those experiences, I think, in order to get to the space shuttle era to to better be of service during that time. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a big transitional point in human spaceflight. And I want to give credit. The Soviets had their own space stations, but I think their program was a lot different from ours as far as, you know, how they did. I don't think they kept a lot of the scientific results. Right. So I think it was much different from ours. So we and plus their program was very closed as opposed to ours. So we couldn't really learn a lot from them. But that's just how things work. Yeah. So, yeah, we were learning it for the first time. Absolutely. Well, the full unedited video will be up uh, on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. But Bill Moon has been on our podcast. How about that? Yes, that is awesome. Thank you so much, Bill. Uh, we really appreciate it. And it's it's just so cool to have these legends on our show. It's really Absolutely. an honor. Your membership powers our podcast. Please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight since last week? So we've gone off on Space Center Houston a few times on this show, and I do notice they are doing a Skylab 50th anniversary gala, which is awesome. I think they're cool. going in the right direction. I don't know if it's because of our show or not. If it was, that would be cool. But <laughs> now, today, I'm going off on Kennedy Space Center. Uh, I was sent a link oh, no. by a friend of mine, and there's an event that they're doing I, I i don't know when it is i just got sent the link of how to buy tickets to it but it's called celebrate the 40th anniversary of women in space afternoon tea and i'm like i hate the idea why do we have to have an afternoon tea why can't we just have a, a conference or a meeting or something like that that seems so like 
do guys get an afternoon tea? Like that just something about that just just set me off. I don't know what it is about it, but I was sent the link and I was like, you know, ladies doing tea and stuff like that. There was just something about that that didn't sit right with me. I don't know. What do you think, Dave? <laughs> Maybe I'm overreacting. I don't know. That's a really interesting point. It's a really interesting point. I hope that it wasn't done to be pat- like in- intentionally patronizing, but it does come across as patronizing, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah, that's exactly. That's what bothered me. It's great that they're doing an event, but who came up with that idea? Like, did no one bump and go, hang on a moment. We've not done an afternoon tea before. Is this a good idea? Yeah. Like afternoon teas, great idea. Love that idea. Do an afternoon tea. Celebrate everything with an afternoon tea. I'm all in favour of afternoon tea. But if your only time you've ever done it, and maybe it isn't, but the only time we're, we've ever been aware that they've done an afternoon tea is to celebrate women in space flight, US women in space flight. We've got an issue there, haven't we? Yeah, that seem, it does seem odd. I've never heard of them doing an afternoon tea for anything else anything else well if we've got that wrong please correct us but i'm not aware of that either but i don't keep too close of an eye on well historically i haven't kept too close of an eye on their events but but yeah there's plenty of things they could have done right they could have had a full gala or just a series of lectures or meetings or yeah audiences with you know there's plenty of things they could have done yeah. that wouldn't have come across as patronizing exactly that's my point they could have done you know get to meet with these trailblazers not necessarily astronauts it could be any kind of woman trailblazer in the space industry very good point yeah so yeah the afternoon tea is uh not my cup of tea to uh quote the uh, late great (laughs) brian o'leary anyway uh so that's what i noticed (laughs) that's honestly what i noticed this week so what about you dave what have you been looking at on a more positive note it's the Axiom flight, which takes, which should be launching on the 21st of May. And it'll be on board a, a SpaceX Dragon capsule when they're going to the International Space Station. So this is the second time that Axiom have, have launched a, a private crew up to the International Space Station. And this time it's going to be commanded by Peggy Whitson, who, if she's in the area, maybe could go and speak at that afternoon tea the week before... <laughs> Oh, no, when she gets back. Maybe when she gets back. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think they're only going for two weeks. By the time she gets back, she might be able to go and talk about that. Because obviously Peggy Whitson is an absolute legend who has more experience in space in terms of time in space than any other American and any other woman. Uh, so yeah, a true, true great Peggy Whitson. It's great to see her, uh, heading back up to space, which I think is really cool. Uh, and she's got, uh, three passengers with her. One is pilot John Schofner, who's a paying customer. And then there are two Saudi astronauts going up as well. Um, Rayana Barnawi and Ali Alkani. That's my first attempt at those names. And I'm going to assume I'm correct because I'm always right when it comes to pronunciation, <laughs> as we know. Um, <laughs> but but Emily will back me up. I didn't stumble there. That was my first attempt. That's what we're yeah, going with. Yeah, sounded good. 
But Bawani will be the first Saudi woman ever to reach space. So again, this is uh, at a time when we're coming up to the 60th anniversary of the first female in space and the 40th anniversary of the first American in space. This feels like a, a good mission to be going up into space right now, commanded by uh, the most experienced American, who happens to be a female, and with the first Saudi woman. And, and as we spoke about when this was announced, let's not use this to wash over some of the issues that go on in Saudi Arabia, particularly to do with women. But it's great to see that Saudi Arabia are putting a woman in space. And hopefully this is the way forward for that country or a path forward for that country with regards to the treatment of women and opportunities for women. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a step. Hopefully it's a step in the right direction. It's really cool to see Peggy Whitson going back to space uh, as you said, she is kind of one of the iconic space travelers of, of our time. So uh, she's certainly spent a lot of time in space. So she's really the perfect person. I, I believe this also makes her one of the only women to command a space flight, which is incredible. Um, it's kind of sad that it's 2023 and very few women have commanded or piloted spacecraft. I, I think I want to think off the top of my head, Eileen Collins. Pam Melroy, we've had uh, Susan uh, Kilrain, uh, we've had uh, Cy Proctor, uh, Cyan Proctor piloted the uh, Inspiration4 mission, and uh, she is the first African-American woman to pilot a spacecraft, and now Peggy Whitson, so yeah, and uh, maybe Nicole Mann too, but we've had very, we've had probably on, you know, two hands, the number of women who have, you know, actually commanded a spacecraft or piloted it and um so this is kind of another this this mission has several milestones that are attached to it and i'm hoping if the weather is good enough i can see it launch from here we'll see and i'm also excited to see sort of how their workflow will be i know the last axiom mission they had some uh workflow issues during it nothing nothing horrible but basically I think there was some interference between the the ISS crew who was there and the axiom crew who was there during the mission so they sort of have to figure out how to work that out and I, i'm always <laughs> many of you know I'm, I'm very interested in how people work in space and and work situations up there and, and it'll be interesting you know to see how they manage it this time around just because as we go further into space we're gonna have this issue of a lot of people in space at the same time maybe working on the same platform you know and how do they work together? How do they work separately? So I think it'll be interesting to look at that. The crews probably yeah. do not feel the same way. They're probably like, oh, dang, you know, <laughs> we all we have all these people up here. But I, I think it's something that is probably going to need to be figured out in the future, because as more and more people travel to space, we need to learn how to work together and apart. If that makes sense. Absolutely. So I, I just obviously want to want to go back to what you were talking about in with regards to female commanders. Uh, Whitson will become the second female to command a SpaceX Dragon. This will be the tenth crewed mission on on a crew Dragon. Obviously, most of them have been NASA, but there was also Inspiration Four, Axiom One, and now this is obviously the third private mission. But Nicole Mann also yeah. on, on Crew 5 also, as you mentioned, did command. Um, so two out of ten of this new era of spaceflight have been commanded by women, which still isn't good enough. But it, it's certainly a higher percentage so far than the amount of 
commanded missions of the space shuttle. So that's positive, although, yeah, a long way to go. Streaming from Earth's northern hemisphere to the solar system and beyond, you're listening to the Space and Things podcast. Okay. That's all we have for you this week. I'm off for a few weeks now. I'm heading over to Florida for a family holiday, which I'm very excited about. I will be going to Kennedy Space Center for afternoon tea a couple of times, which I'm also happy about. I mean, just to visit for a couple of times, which I am happy about. Uh, If you're in the area, I can't promise to have time to meet up, but by all means, drop me a message. And if we can, then we will. Thanks again for all who support the podcast. We're still actively looking for more people to sign up to our Patreon page. Plenty of you already have, but the more the merrier. And we're getting close to a point where I don't have to stress as much. So please, if you can, check it out or check out our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com and pick yourself up a bit of our merchandise. Or if you're feeling a little flush, maybe donate something for nothing. That would be incredibly generous of you. Absolutely. Uh, again, you know, please uh, hit up our Patreon account if, if you're able to. We also have a variety of treats and, and things for people who uh, contribute to our Patreon, and it does really help us out. So really does. obviously with Dave going away for a few weeks, we won't be doing the What Caught My Eye in Spaceflight This Week feature as we pre-recorded the next few weeks. But it just means that there will be more to talk about when he's back. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. This has been the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles.